Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 278, Response to Burgos on Creation and the One God versus the One Lord, Part 1. In this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, I'm going to respond to a recent critique of a portion of my work by Dr. Michael Burgos. Dr. Burgos is a pastor at Northwest Hills Community Church in Connecticut. He's an apologist and the editor of a collection of essays called Our God is Triune, and there and elsewhere he's targeted Unitarian Christians for biblical critique. In his view, Unitarian Christian views are just easily refutable simply by looking at the grammar of the Bible. I appreciate the engagement. As we'll see, though, there are some cases where I don't think Dr. Burgos entirely understands the biblical motivations of Unitarian Christians. So I've taken his podcast episode and I've edited out some things that I think everyone agrees with and just some other extraneous material just to free up some time. So I'm going to play my edit of it here and then respond to various parts of it. Over then to Dr. Burgos. I'd like to talk about the Shema, Biblical Unitarianism, and 1 Corinthians 8, 6. So he's going to start by reading part of Deuteronomy chapter 6, which includes the famous Shema. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Fascinating passage. So I've edited out a bit here where he talks about how the Shema is the central confession of biblical Judaism and how, in his view, all of the Old Testament is monotheistic and not merely polytheism plus monolatry. That is, we should only worship one of the many gods. In a sense, that's right. When you properly understand what monotheism is, you can then see that the entire Old Testament is monotheistic. So now he continues with some further comments on the Shema. Certainly an informed apostolic piety. It's the definitive monotheistic statement in the Bible for the people of God. There are others, other important ones, Isaiah 43.10. There's all kinds of other monotheistic decrees in the Old Testament, but I think the Shema is the most important one. While it concisely defines the exclusive worship of Yahweh as the only God of God's covenant people, it doesn't give us a characterization of the nature of God. And I think this is where we, as Orthodox Christians, begin to uh, seriously disagree with our so-called biblical Unitarian friends. They would say that the Shema actually does tell us something about the nature of God, that he is in fact one person. But I think that is in fact going beyond what is written. 
Now, I think there's something right in what he says here, and that's that the Shema was not intended to assert something like the later doctrine of divine simplicity. It's not telling you that God is one in an absolute sense, that there isn't any degree of any kind of differentiation within God. No, he's just like a, you know, like a mathematical point with no extension. No, it's not saying that. Now, there have been Jews in Christian times who have said that it says that. I think in some cases that was a reaction against Trinity theories. And it was also influenced by just divine simplicity in Platonic philosophy. That much, I think, should be uncontroversial. Also, I would agree that the Shema does not explicitly assert that God is a single person. But the reason it doesn't assert that is because that wasn't in dispute. What the Shema does is it assumes that God's one person. How does it do that? It refers to God using a proper personal name. Yahweh is understood as a personal name. It's like the name Mike or Dale. Another way it assumes that he's a single person is by characterizing Yahweh as the Israelites' God. That's what a God is. It's like a super-duper mighty self, a single he. Another way the passage assumes that God is a single self is it says that you're supposed to love him. And love is typically a self-to-self relation. He gives commandments. That's something that a self does, issues commands. You can talk about governments and groups issuing commands, yes. But all of these things taken together, especially the use of a personal name, personal pronouns, singular verbs, it all just presents a picture of a single he. Now, some Trinity theories are consistent with that. In my work, I've called them one-self Trinity theories. And other Trinity theories are not consistent with that. I've called them three-self Trinity theories. So yeah, there is monotheism here, but the one God is assumed to be numerically the same as Yahweh, and Yahweh is everywhere in the Old Testament, represented as a person. In the New Testament, this one gets referred to a lot as the Father, our Father in heaven, the Lord God, or just God, and the same applies to Him. So, biblical Unitarian theology isn't solely or mostly based on the Shema. It is based on the presentation of God in the entire Old Testament and the entire New Testament. Back to Dr. Burgos. N.T. Wright has observed, and this is a quote from his wonderful book, The New Testament and the People of God, Christian Origins and the Question of God. Within the most fiercely monotheistic of Jewish circles throughout our period, he's talking about the, the Second Temple period, from the Maccabean Revolt to Bar Kokhba, there is no suggestion that monotheism, or praying the Shema, had anything to do with the numerical analysis of the inner being of Israel's God himself. It had everything to do with the two-pronged fight against paganism and dualism. Indeed, we find strong evidence during this period of Jewish groups and individuals who, speculating upon the meaning of some difficult passages of Scripture, Deuteronomy 7 and the Son of Man passage, for example, and he also notes here Genesis 1, probably alluding to Genesis 1.26, suggested that the divine being might, in fact, encompass a plurality. A plurality? A plurality of what? Attributes, aspects, personalities, appearances, plans, ideas, thoughts. 
in a sense, to just talk about there being some kind of plurality in God is just trivial. It's just to say that the doctrine of divine simplicity is false. Lots of people think that, whatever their view is about Trinity theories. I've edited out a bit here where Dr. Burgos claims that there was non-Unitarian, I assume he means like binitarian or Trinitarian Jewish theology in the Second Temple Jewish period. He uses the contentious term proto-Trinitarian. I'm not going to engage him on that here. I'll just point out that this is entirely dependent on contentious scholarship. And, you know, one of our best sources of evidence for Jewish theology in Jesus's time is the books of the New Testament. And there we don't see evidence of a multipersonal God. Oftentimes I'll hear biblical Unitarians or Oneness Pentecostals say, well, the Jews didn't believe in the Trinity and they don't now. So clearly the Trinity can't be taught in the Old Testament. Well, yeah, that's a non sequitur. If the Jews don't believe in the Trinity now, it doesn't follow that the Trinity isn't taught in the Old Testament. Of course, totally aside from present-day Jews, you could find very good grounds for thinking that the Old Testament doesn't contain any Trinity doctrine. But, you know, this is really a straw man. It's a caricature of our position, at least for most biblical Unitarians. Most of us don't make too much of the fact that modern Jews don't believe in a multipersonal God. We're just going from the Old Testament, just like people like Dr. Burgos are. And the difficulty with that is the Unitarian Unitarianism of modern-day conservative Judaism, which is not universal, by the way, but it is certainly the majority, that stream of Judaism is in part a reaction to Christianity. And so to say, well, Jews didn't believe in the Trinity, therefore the Old Testament doesn't teach it, is an appeal to unbelief, essentially, because uh, those Jews necessarily rejected Jesus Christ, and of course they reject any kind of teaching that would accord with that in their Bible. Uh, wow. Appeal to unbelief is not any kind of fallacy. And I'm a little uncomfortable with those comments. It's a little bit close to the fallacy of poisoning the well. The poisoning the well fallacy is when you kind of suggest that certain people, because of their motives or their interests, should just be ignored. So you just dismiss arguments because of something else that's not relevant about the person who's offering the arguments. And yeah, it is relevant that most Jews today reject Jesus, and so we're going to end up disagreeing with them about Jesus. But I wouldn't be comfortable dismissing Jewish scholarship about, say, the Hebrew Scriptures simply on the grounds that it's done by Jews. And so what we see in the literature of the Second Temple period, in things like the Targums, are pointers, uh, evidence for this non-Unitarian stream of Judaism. What he's talking about there are Aramaic paraphrases and sort of commentaries on the Hebrew Bible that were done around the time of Jesus and a little before. And in them, they talk about the word of the Lord and the word of the Lord doing things and at least being strongly personified. And so he's saying, aha, there's your second divine person right there. Again, I'm not going to engage that because I want to get on to some scriptural points that he's making farther on. We also have 
polemic works, wherein Unitarian Jews uh, of the rabbinic variety actually interact and write against who they would call the min or the sectarians. Right, of course, this is late second century stuff. And they, of course, pejoratively call these people those who hold to the two powers in heaven view, which is not accurate because it's a pejorative, and uh, there's good evidence that they even uh, identify the personhood of the Holy Spirit. But I don't have time to go into that because I really wanted to talk about the Shema in this episode and ultimately 1 Corinthians 8, 6. But my point here is that the Shema clearly doesn't teach Unitarianism. Rather, it, it only teaches us monotheism. It doesn't give us a characterization of the ontology of God, of God's nature, but it tells us that there is one God and there's only one covenant God that is appropriate for uh, teaching both to our children and for worship and devotion. I've edited out a bit here where Dr. Burgos talks about how the Shema is difficult to translate. That's true, but I think we can just agree that it's asserting the uniqueness of Yahweh. I'm not sure that really is relevant to any dispute between us, so I've edited that out. And again, I think he's right that it isn't asserting that the divine nature is one in some heavy metaphysical sense, such that there aren't any divisions or any distinctions that can be made within God. But that's really kind of a trivial point. As I explained, it does seem to presuppose that God is a single self, and this one is named Yahweh. Other people, sometimes Christians, sometimes Trinitarian apologists, unfortunately, will try to do the exact error of Unitarians who try to say that Deuteronomy 6.4 is telling us something about the nature of God. They'll try to say that the word akkad, which is uh, translated either in terms of the Lord is one or the Lord alone, and again, there's a bit of a debate there, they would say that that term actually also tells us something about the nature of God, that God is like a compound unity. Preach it. And I think that is also erroneous. I, mm-hmm. I think, you know, sometimes, you know, they'll they'll put the two words, Yahid and Achad, next to each other, and they'll say, well, Yahid refers to a an absolute unity, a single, and, and Achad refers to this compound unity. I think that's simply an abuse of language, and I, I think that's going beyond what is written. And so I would disagree yep. with some Good of the scholars don't make that argument. Uh, that have argued that way, because I don't think the Shema tells us anything about the nature of God. I simply believe that it teaches us about monotheism, that there is only one suitable object of worship, which is the consistent testimony of the entire Bible. Just a quick comment on that. At the end there, he confused the ideas of monotheism and monolatry. Monotheism is that there's exactly one God. Monolatry is that there's only one which should be worshipped. And I agree that the Old Testament does teach both of those claims. It is possible to have one without the other. You can give examples in other religions of monotheism without monolatry and monolatry without monotheism. Now about monolatry, if you're talking not about the Old Testament, but about the New Testament... That presupposes the falsity of monolatry. In the New Testament, there are two who are worshipped. There are two objects of worship. You see this portrayed in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. There are two objects of worship there. They're worshipped for different reasons. They are, you could say, worshipped together. They're worshipped at the same time, but it's not like they're confused together. You also see two objects of worship in Philippians 2. When Christ is exalted and worshipped by every knee bowing to him, 
Paul says it's to the glory of God the Father. So you have an immediate object of worship there, the Son of God, and then you have the ultimate object of worship, which is God. So not monolatry, nope. If you think that monolatry is true, do you think it's a necessary truth? A truth such that it's absolutely impossible that it fail to be true? Or do you think it's a contingent truth? I would say that you really can't make a case that monolatry is a necessary truth. There's not any obvious impossibility about the appropriateness of worshiping more than one. Again, to claim that something is a necessary truth, it has to be impossible that it fails to be true. A contingent truth is one that is true but could possibly not be true. If something is true because God has willed it, it looks like that will have to be a contingent truth. My view is that monolatry was true in the Old Testament era, but once God had exalted his own son to his right hand, monolatry was no longer true. It was therefore appropriate for human beings to worship God and also the Son of God. Now there's a linguistic problem here, and I've talked about this in my podcast and my paper and my presentation entitled, Who Should Christians Worship? The problem is that sometimes nowadays people use the term worship, and just by definition they mean that's something for God alone. Just in principle, it couldn't be rightly given to another. Okay, if that's what you mean by worship, then only God is worshipped in the New Testament, just like the Old Testament. And Jesus, make up another term, say that you honor Jesus, but you worship God. And one way you worship God is by honoring Jesus. But I prefer to put it the way I just did, because I think the worship terminology in the Bible is, most of it, very flexible and can be used of God or of others. So I don't want to quarrel about whether or not we should say we can worship Jesus, but I do think we should honor Jesus if you don't want to call it worship. If you want to use the word worship to mean worship as God, then no, in that sense, we don't worship Jesus. But then the worship of Jesus as God is nowhere portrayed in the Bible. Rather, you have, as I just mentioned, Jesus being worshiped, and this is to the glory of God. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Burgos turns to a discussion of the Shema in the New Testament. When we think about the Shema here, we're thinking about an affirmation of monotheism. Now, as we're Christians looking at the New Testament and always looking at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament and the New Testament's conception of the Old Testament, there are two passages in the New Testament which are relevant in our consideration of the Shema. The first is Mark twelve twenty-eight through 34, and I will read that to you. This is Jesus's interaction with the scribe. It says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing he answered them all well. This is referring to Jesus' previous interaction with the Sadducees. 
this scribe asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. They're certainly appealing to the Septuagint's reading, I think. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And so Jesus gives him two commandments for his one question. Now, some would say that, you know, like Anthony Buzzard, they would say that Jesus's affirmation of the Shema precludes the possibility of the Trinity. And Buzzard argues this in Jesus was non Trinitarian. And what they would say is the Lord is one necessarily is an affirmation of Unitarianism, that phrase. Well, I think Anthony and others would agree that the Shema is asserting the uniqueness of Yahweh. They also make the point that it says that there's only one Yahweh. And I think they interpret that as the claim that there's only one who's called Yahweh. And I would say that's a different claim. If God could be spoken of as giving his name to someone or putting his name in someone, then there might be more than one who are called Yahweh. But yes, it's asserting his uniqueness. Now, they would, of course, point out the Nicene Creed, which both the 325 version and the 381 version, which refers to true God from true God. And it's talking about one being who exists without origin, without being caused by another. And then there's another one who exists because of that first one. It looks like there are two different things here being referred to as God and indeed as true God. And presumably you call something true God because you think it's divine. So it looks like you have two divine beings there. But still, at the end of the day, some Trinitarians really think there's one self in the Trinity, and some think there are three. And it's the three people that have the more obvious problem with the Shema. If that was the intended sentiment by the scribe, that would mean that the scribe misinterpreted Jesus' statement, since the scribe stated in verse 32, You are right, teacher. You have truly said he is one, and there is no other besides him. That statement is a conflation of the Septuagintal rendering of the second clause of Deuteronomy 6 floor, the Lord is one, and the last clause of Deuteronomy 4.35, which says there is no other besides him. For the scribe, the Shema was an affirmation of monotheism. It was an assertion that there are no other gods besides Yahweh. It was not an assertion of Unitarianism, since the phrase no other besides him refers to, of course, other gods, meaning there are no other gods besides this one god, namely Yahweh the covenant God of Israel. Right. And this one God is a him. He is one. Besides him, there is no other. And we're to love him with all the heart, etc. That's how, when you don't have a technical term like self or person, that's how you express that there is a single self being talked about. You use personal pronouns. And you use those pronouns literally, not metaphorically. So you're not talking about a boat as she. We're talking about a country as Uncle Sam doing something. Yeah, when you regularly use singular personal pronouns, that reflects the assumption that what you're referring to is a self. How does this relate to the, quote, persons of the Trinity? Well, if you have a theory about a triune God, you can tell me what you mean by persons. By self, I'm just using the common sense notion that you can find in any culture in the world. Humans are supposed to be selves. Deities are supposed to be selves. Angels are supposed to be selves. Ghosts are supposed to be selves. Aliens are supposed to be selves. 
I think we do have a grasp of this vague and yet important concept. And so really any reader can see the assumption of oneself monotheism here. And notice that Christians very often go around talking about stingy or restricted or somehow just too stifling Jewish monotheism. Jesus doesn't have any comments like that here, nor is there any hint of multiple persons in God here. You're supposed to love him. So I've cut a short bit here where Dr. Burgos is saying, hey, why I think this is talking about the nature of God. To say that the passage assumes that God is a self doesn't assume any metaphysical interest or really any attempt to define the nature of God. Also, and this is kind of a pedantic point, a Trinitarian shouldn't say that the divine nature includes triunity or being multiple persons. And the reason for that is, according to traditional Trinity theories, each one of the persons has the totality of the divine nature. So if the divine nature includes tripersonality, then Jesus will have three persons in him. The Father will be tripersonal. The Spirit will be tripersonal. They don't want to say that. Now, some Trinitarians like Dr. William Lane Craig kind of turn this around and they say, actually, the divine nature does include tripersonality, and so, strictly speaking, only the Trinity as a whole has the divine nature. But he's going against mainstream tradition there. Mainstream tradition is, no, the Father has the divine nature, all of it. The Son has the divine nature, and the Spirit has the divine nature. And so, that's why you shouldn't say the divine nature includes being several persons or tripersonality, etc., but still, Dr. Burgos's point is well taken, which is that, strictly speaking, no, the Shema is not a statement about the metaphysical composition of the one God. That's right, it's not. But it fits into a whole type of monotheism that you see in the Hebrew scriptures, where the one God is a someone, a single self. He continues. Rather, these texts simply assert monotheism, which is not a point of disagreement between so-called biblical Unitarians and Orthodox Christians. We both affirm monotheism. <laughs> yes, just the abstract claim that there is exactly one God, that is held in common. But the problem is that the New Testament then goes on to tell us who that is, and it's the Father. And so that implies that it's not the Trinity. So yeah, there is a big disagreement here. And I know it's uh, typical of uh, biblical Unitarians to claim otherwise, but that is both disingenuous and untrue. As our creeds confess, as our confessions confess, there is but one God. And I might add that the only means by which the uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct is the way that they relate to each other and the way that they relate to creation. They're not ontologically distinct. I think what he means at the end there is that they share in nature. I mean, there are going to be differences between them, even apart from creation, right? According to just about any Trinity theory. But what about his charge that biblical Unitarians are disingenuous? Well, there's a general difficulty here. When we're in a theological dispute, it's very, very tempting to take what you think is surely an implication of your opponent's view and then say that's just what their view is. So, 
For instance, when discussing my views, an apologist like Dr. Burgos might say something like, in his view, Jesus is just another great teacher. He's nothing special. He's not somebody you should worship. They may think that my views entail this, but of course, I deny that they entail that. In fact, I affirm that Jesus should be worshipped and that he's nothing like a mere man because it's a very unique and important thing to be God's Messiah. So when Unitarian Christians look at Trinity theories, in their view, Trinity theories imply the falsity of monotheism. Now, of course, they should know that any Trinity theory, by definition, includes the thesis of monotheism. A Trinitarian is someone who thinks there's only one God, and also that one God is tripersonal. So yes, it is, I think, contentious, a bit unfair, maybe even disingenuous to describe Trinitarian Christians as not monotheistic or as denying monotheism. They do mean to affirm it. Of course, the question is, does their theory about the Trinity imply the falsity of monotheism, even though they are explicitly affirming monotheism? So the real question isn't, are they monotheistic? The real question is, are Trinitarian theologies self-consistently monotheistic? That is, monotheistic and also none of the propositions they affirm imply the falsity of monotheism. In this podcast and elsewhere in my work, I've conceded that some Trinity theories do seem monotheistic. These would be the one-self theories. There's one God, there's three persons, and they say things like, yeah, but the persons aren't to be understood as persons in the modern sense. These are more like masks. They're more like eternal roles, but they're intrinsic and essential to God. So God just eternally lives his life in these three ways. Well, yeah, that sounds like one God. I don't see why there couldn't be one God who just lives with sort of three personalities at the same time or something like that, or lives in three distinct ways. That sounds like monotheism to me. Now, whether that's a truly biblical theology is another question, but just as far as ticking the box of monotheism, that one seems to do it. Many of the three-self people, and I don't know, honestly, which category Dr. Burgos fits into, but a lot of the three-self people, or they're often called social Trinitarians, they think there are these numerically distinct beings, one, two, three of them, Each one of them has all that's required to be a god. So it just looks like there are three gods there, and so then monotheism would be false. It's a burden on the three-self Trinitarian to show why this isn't tritheism, and they usually try to make a move in that direction. Whether they're successful is another question. It depends on the theory. The objections to these different moves are going to be different. Yeah, on the face of it, if you have three things, each of them is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good. Each of them is equally the creator of the heavens and the earth. It looks like you have three gods in your system. And if you just say there's only one god, okay, which one of them is it? Oh, it's three altogether? Okay, so there's a fourth thing that's a composite with those three parts? Okay, that's interesting if that's your view. A lot of Trinitarians would say, nope. The persons of the Trinity are not parts of God. But, you know, some like Dr. William Lane Craig do say that, or at least that there's something like parts of God. So, yeah, Trinity theories are a big mess. They come in different varieties. And I think sometimes biblical Unitarians mistakenly buy into the assumption that a lot of Trinitarians have, which is that, quote, the Trinity 
end quote, is someone theology. It's not. What's been standardized is the language. And then people make sense of the language as best they can. And they come up with incompatible schemes. And if you want to see what some of those schemes are, you can just look at my entry, Trinity, in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. It doesn't advance the argument for Unitarian Christians to just accuse Trinitarians of denying monotheism and being polytheists. The way to argue this point is to first figure out what they think the Trinity is. And that sometimes is very hard because a lot of Trinitarians really don't have articulated views. They just know the sorts of things they're supposed to say. But if you can actually get someone to explain what they mean by the terms person and essence, then yes, on some of the Trinity theories, it's going to turn out that there are three things, each of which is a God, each of which is fully divine. And yeah, that's not monotheism. That's tritheism but then other Trinity theories won't be like that. So yeah, we agree just on abstract monotheism that there's only one God, but of course in the New Testament, this only one God, the one true God, the one God is the Father. And interestingly, this is also the case in all the early creeds, in the early baptismal creeds, in the rules of faith that are mentioned in people like Tertullian, Irenaeus, and Origen. And even in the famous two versions of the Nicene Creed, it starts off, we believe in one God. You're thinking, well, are they going to say the Trinity? Nope. The Father Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth. That was traditional. You see this in the New Testament as well. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Burgos discusses one of Unitarian Christians' favorite verses, 1 Corinthians 8.6. The other text, aside from Mark 12, that is relevant to this discussion is 1 Corinthians 8.6, and this is what I really wanted to get to because I had responded to uh, Dr. Tuggy. He had uh, put up a uh, a link to a a blog post that uh, is entitled, How Trinity Theories Conflict with the New Testament. He provides a number of arguments, but on the bottom of this, uh, and these arguments, I think, um, are problematic. Oh, and dear. I'm not going to bother tell. to get into them now because I really wanted to talk about the biblical text itself. But oh, man. he notes in this blog post that 1 Corinthians 8 6 says clearly that there is one God and that this is proof of Unitarianism. <laughs> wait, a, wait a second there, partner. Yes, 1 Corinthians 8 6 says there's one God. And then what does it say? The Father. Yes, just saying that there's one God by itself wouldn't favor Christian Unitarian theology. But yeah, saying that there's one God and that this is the Father, yes, that's exactly what we say. Whereas the Trinitarian thinks that the one God is the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's the three of them together that are the one God. Let me see if I can find uh, that statement here. 
Yes, it says, uh, unfortunately, when it comes to 1 Corinthians 8, 6, some readers are confused by the fact that Lord can be used to name the Father and also Jesus. Mm-hmm. In Paul, when he's not quoting the Old Testament, is it's normally the latter. Right, Nothing Jesus. strange here. Any name, term, or title can be equivocal. That is, it can, in different contexts, refer to various beings. But mm-hmm. note that Paul here is presupposing this in this very sentence, that the one God and the one Lord differ in some way. Right. From, through whom, and he, he puts that parenthetically. So we can be sure that he is not using the terms God and Lord co-referentially here, uh, rather than assuming them to be non-identical, not numerically one. Right. Airtight reasoning. We're just assuming here that Paul understands the truth of what philosophers call the indiscernibility of identicals, which basically says that if you can discover a simultaneous difference between two things, they really are two things. It can't just be one thing observed in two different ways. In other words, a thing can't be and not be the same way in the same respect. Paul knows about lots of differences between Jesus and God, between the one Lord and the one God, between the Son of God and God. So, you know, he's not confusing them together, and he's not here using the terms God and Lord as co-referential. Airtight reasoning. Okay. So how's he going to get around that? So I noted on Twitter that this sort of thing is erroneous on a number of levels. Oh, man, not the many levels. The God and Lord are both titles of deity in 1 Corinthians 8.6. <laughs> titles of deity? Oh, boy. What do you mean by a title of deity, Dr. Burgos? If a title of deity is a title that can be used of God, well, of course the terms God and Lord are both titles of deity in that sense. And then what's the dispute? They can both be used of God, but here the term God is being used to refer to the Father, and the term Lord is being used to refer to the Son of God, to, to the man Jesus. If titles of deity means a title that can only properly be used for something which is divine or which is fully divine, then no, these are not titles of deity. As we know from biblical examples, angels or people can be referred to as gods, and there are various ones other than God who can be referred to as lords, such as human kings, masters, and so on. So, if titles of deity means that both these terms God and Lord can be used of God. Yes, of course, but that doesn't affect how the two of us read this passage and what the dispute between us is. If they're both titles of deity and that they can only be used of the one God or of a fully divine referent, that's just obviously false. The vorlage in light of 1 Corinthians 8, 6 is most certainly the Septuagint. Paul is constantly depending upon the Septuagint. Okay, vorlage. He's talking about a text that is assumed to be something kind of in Paul's view here. As he's writing a new text, he has this other text in mind. And the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Yes, the early Christians did use the Old Testament mostly in Greek translations. And one of those was the Septuagint. And I went on to note that Paul attributes the act of creation both to God and the Lord. Let's actually read the first few verses and take a look at this passage, maybe a little bit more in depth. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So, now concerning, which is uh, peri day, but concerning, 
I think this tips us off that Paul is referring to something that was in the previous correspondence sent to Paul by the Corinthians. And so evidently they had asked about the question of eating meat sacrificed to idols. Right. And within Corinth, it was virtually impossible to get a hold of a piece of meat in that time, in that place, that hadn't been sacrificed to an idol or hadn't undergone some kind of token pagan ritual. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, are Christians sinning in some way by participating in eating this this meat, whether it is in the place of uh, pagan worship or whether it is simply being sold from a butcher who had uh, indeed committed some kind of pagan sacrificial worship you know, devotion with that meat. And so Paul says, if anyone imagines he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought. Meaning, if you think you've really got your stuff together, if you think you know it all, you don't because you're not being being humble. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And so uh, these two statements, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And if, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. He continues in verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Of course, this being a um, quotation, there is no God but one, again, of Deuteronomy 4.35. Just like in Mark 12, where the scribe quotes Deuteronomy 4.35, Paul quotes it. And so evidently, in the mind of Second Temple Jews, this was certainly a relevant text, which, again, points to the fact that the Shema is uh, asserting monotheism and not some kind of charter on the nature of God. Again, that's basically right. A picky point is that, strictly speaking, there aren't clear quotations in these sources because they literally didn't have quotation marks. They just weren't as careful in how they would refer back to things. They weren't careful in the way that we require in academic context now. But yes, of course, Paul knows all about the Shema. And of course, Paul believes in one God. And he's also, of course, told us who that is. Not the Trinity. It's just the Father. And then there's also this other one, the one Lord. Paul continues in verse 5, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now to quote a translation that says exist there um, kind of favors the creation interpretation of this passage. So the NIV says, For us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So they supply the verb live there in both cases. A very literal translation like the Berean Literal Bible says, Yet to us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we through him. So his thought here is compressed, and because it's so compressed, it's obscure, and you even have to expand it a little bit to even give a full translation, it seems. Ultimately, Paul would come down on saying, look, you can eat meat, sacrifice to idols. These idols don't really exist as such anyway. Uh, Really, they're... Mas- just simply demons masquerading as pagan gods. Uh, he concludes that in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Mm-hmm. But he says, if you're eating 
uh, of this meat causes another brother to stumble. If your Christian liberty is uh, detrimental to your neighbor, then you shouldn't eat the meat because in that case you would be sinning. And so Paul here lays out the main principles for the doctrine of Christian liberty. Now, what we want to look at specifically is what Paul says in verse 6, which again is, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. And this is within the context of the so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many, many gods and many lords. Gordon Fee notes that the formula, and this is from his um, commentary on the epistle to uh, the Corinthians, the first epistle. He says, The formula, one God and one Lord, stand in specific contrast to the many gods and many lords of the pagans. This means that the emphasis is not on the unity of the Godhead. By the way, we need to get rid of that word Godhead. The suffix head has largely been supplanted within modern English by the suffix hood. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about Godhead, we're talking about Godhood, namely deity. And so I think just using Godhood or deity would be more meaningful in our modern context. Yes, this is a great point. The term Godhead in English should never be used in any translation. It's just not a good word. Deity is usually what's meant. Of course, deity comes, you know, the property of being divine. That comes with its own vagueness because it could be a way of referring to God, right? The deity, uh, or it could be referring to that which makes God a God. So it could be an individual property that's in principle not shareable with another, or it could be a universal property that in principle could be had by multiple things. It's worse than that, though, because Godhead has somehow come to be used as a plural referring expression for the persons of the Trinity. And that doesn't make any sense in terms of the literal meaning of the Greek and Latin terms that get translated sometimes as Godhead. All you have to do is talk about the members of the Trinity or the persons of the Trinity. We don't need this term, the Godhead. So let's say things like Jesus is a member of the Godhead or the Godhead is a dance of divine love and things like this. Yes, the term Godhead should die. It's not a useful English term. It's not needed for the translation of any biblical or even theological term. It just introduces confusion. Now about Gordon Fee's quote, Yes, not only is Paul not emphasizing the unity of the Godhead, in other words, the the fact that allegedly the three persons of the Trinity are one God, he's not talking about Godhead at all in any of the three meanings. He's not talking about the Father, Son, and the Spirit. He's not talking about the divine nature understood as a universal. He's not talking about the divine nature understood as a singular property that in principle couldn't be shared. Yeah, I mean, look, Godhead just doesn't come into this. Dr. Fee is just projecting his Trinitarian interests onto Paul. But on the uniqueness of the only God, the God whom Christians worship as Father and Son stands in singular contrast to all others who might be thought to be gods and are not. So the question of idolatry and true worship are under consideration in 1 Corinthians 8.6. The phrase, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, places those terms the terms God and Lord, on something of a plane, right? Yes, in some sense, but let's be careful with this point. Leon Morris, in his commentary on uh, 1 
Corinthians, which is the Tyndale uh, commentary. He notes that the term Lord was a common way of referring to the deity in the cults of the time. Gordon Fee went on to note that the two terms, gods and lords, reflect the basic forms of Greco-Roman religion as it has been modified by the coming of the Oriental cults. The gods designate the traditional deities who are regularly given the appellation in literature, but also seldom referred to as curioi, meaning lords. And the term curios, on the other hand, is the normal title for the deities of the mystery cults. And so gods, hathios, or here is hoitheoi, would be the term that one would use for the traditional deities of the uh, Greco-Roman pantheon. And then hoikurioi would be the, the term used, lords, for the gods of the mystery cults, you know, Osiris and this sort of thing. Right. And many commenters go on to make a further point. There's a distinction here in pagan culture of the time between basically top-tier deities and second-tier deities. And uh, a lot of people don't know this about polytheistic schemes, but not only do they have many deities, but there are high gods and there are lower down gods, and sometimes there are demigods and heroes. There can be multiple tiers. It doesn't have to be just two. But my understanding is that they would assume the traditional gods to be primary and these foreign gods that have come in, well, they're fine, but don't neglect the primary gods. So many commenters on this passage have pointed out that Paul is kind of making use here of a pagan distinction between gods and lords, where the, quote, gods are the highest tier of deities over the lords. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't read this as saying that God the Father is a high level deity, and Paul is saying that the Lord Jesus is a second-tier deity, I don't think that's his point. I think what he's just said in the passage is that for the pagans, in the pagans' view, there are many gods and lords. And I think translations like the NIV are correct when they put the words gods and lords in quotes there. Other translations will say so-called gods or so-called lords. Right. They think that there are many real things to whom the term God should apply and many real things to whom the term Lord should apply. Yeah, but we don't think that. We think there's one who should be called God, the Father, and there's one who should be called Lord. That's Jesus, the man. So yeah, they've got lots of gods and lords, but we Christians have only one God and only one Lord. Back to Dr. Burgos. And so the application of curios, Lord, as a translation for the Tetragrammaton, we need to note, is very common in the New Testament. Mm, sure. When Paul talks about calling upon the name of the Lord, quoting from a Yahweh text, the Septuagint translates that as curios, and Paul uses curios, of course, applying that text to the Lord Jesus Christ, thus identifying him as the God of the Old Testament. Wow. Where to start with this one? I mean, look, because the term Lord in some contexts can be used to refer to God, it doesn't follow that it refers to God in this context. It's an equivocal term. It's a term which has more than one meaning. I mean, look up kurios in any lexicon. I think you're going to find basically four meanings there. It can mean sir, just a polite form of address. It can mean master, something a little heavier, uh, somebody with some kind of authority over others. And then it can be used as a substitute for the divine name when quoting the Old Testament. Yep, 
Call that the highest usage of Lord. Now, which of those is going on when we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it seems like none of them. There's an additional usage which is introduced in the New Testament based on Psalm 110.1, where the Lord, in the original Hebrew, Yahweh, the Lord says to my Lord, Kuriasmu, in the Greek version, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So there are two lords here. There's the Lord God, and then there's the Lord Messiah, who's here being raised to God's right hand. This is referred to many times in the New Testament. I won't take the time to give all the references. So yeah, fourth meaning for Lord is for Jesus as opposed to God. It can be a term for the exaltee as opposed to the exalter in Psalm 1101. And everybody knows these are two different uses of the term Lord. And so that's why interpreters will sometimes scratch their heads and wonder whether Paul or James or someone is referring to God or to Jesus when they say Lord. Again, there's an issue here of what I call the fulfillment fallacy. Just because a New Testament author says that what was originally a Yahweh text is fulfilled in Jesus, it doesn't follow that they think Jesus is Yahweh. That's a mistake. It follows that they think that passage has a fulfillment in Jesus, seemingly in addition to the original fulfillment, unless they think it's just God operating through Jesus. That could be the case for some of these prophecies as well. So Dr. Burgos talks here about how kurios in Greek is a substitute for Yahweh in the Greek version of the Old Testament, and that's because in later Jewish times, they thought it was impious to say God's name in Hebrew, so they would work around it, say things like the name, the Holy One, the King of the Universe, or the Lord. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Burgos gets into a controversial newfangled interpretation of 1 Corinthians 8. The Apostle uses all of the key terms that are found within the Septuagint's rendering of the Shema. He's applied these terms in a complementary way to both the Father and Son, while simultaneously attributing different functions in the creation of all things to both of them, to both Father and Son. Okay, he's using the terms in a complementary way? I have no idea what that means or why that could be thought to support his reading of this passage. Now, is Paul here assigning different functions within the job of creating to the two of them? Well, that's to presuppose the reading that Paul is here talking about creation. And this is something that I have disputed, specifically in podcasts 258 and 259. And this occurs within a passage an exhortation dealing with idolatry. Yeah, it's not clear exactly how that is relevant. 
Look, Paul is addressing a practical question here about whether Christians can eat food sacrificed to idols. And so kind of in passing, he contrasts Jewish Christian monotheism with pagan polytheism. And really, do we think that he's introducing a serious revision to the doctrine of creation here, where actually creation was a group project and it required two, or does Dr. Burgos want to say three beings? In other words, three actors, three personal agents, that is to say three selves. And here, I think we're at a point where he doesn't understand the biblical motivations of my position about this, much less the actual arguments that I've given. So just briefly, in the Old Testament, there is one creator, Yahweh, seemingly a single self, and he takes all the credit. And it says creation is the work of his hands. And he says that he did it all by himself. And so clearly he's saying that none of the other alleged deities had any part in creation. Yes, I'm aware of when he says, uh, let us make man in our image and likeness in Genesis. But then it proceeds to, to use singular verbs and it looks like God just does it on his own. Commenters think nowadays that God is supposed to be addressing his divine counsel, beings that we would call angels. In ancient times, they could be called Elohim. So it's pretty clear that the creator God in the Old Testament did it by himself, didn't have any help, and that he's the ultimate source. The buck stops with him. You're not supposed to ask, well, who was involved before God? Like, that's a bad question. It's just God is the ultimate origin of other things. Okay, so then we look at the New Testament and this one who's referred to as Yahweh and the God of the Jews, the Lord Almighty, and so on in the Old Testament, in the New Testament is referred to as the Father or just as God in our translations with capital G-O-D in Greek, usually Hatheos, the God, understood to be the monotheistic unique God. And in more than a dozen passages, and I'll list these on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, these are passages in the books of Mark, Romans, Acts, Hebrews, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, and Revelation. It mentions God as creator, and God is understood to refer to the Father, unless you're in a very unusual context where there's some reason to take the term God otherwise. All serious New Testament scholars will tell you this, that God nearly always refers to the Father in the New Testament. So, when the New Testament is clearly, uncontroversially talking about the Genesis creation, it seems to just continue the doctrine of the Old Testament, that the one God, the Father, also known as Yahweh in earlier times, he created all by himself. And he's the ultimate source of creation. To be a creator is to be the ultimate source. Now, one idea that you see in 2nd and 3rd century Logos theories is that God is too transcendent, maybe too holy to create directly. And so he has to have this intermediary through which he creates. And this gave a great push towards reading a handful of passages in the New Testament as saying, that God created through the pre-human Jesus. I mean, he must have. He couldn't have done it himself. He couldn't have got his own hands dirty, so to speak. I don't think that's a biblical concern. I don't think the biblical writers would have any need for an intermediary to create when it says that the heavens and the earth are his own handiwork and so on. 
So yeah, Jesus, Paul, Luke, the author of Hebrews, the author of Revelation, they all seem to just describe creation to God, that is to say, the Father. So why should it be the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or even just the Father and the Son? Is it really a group project, or is there a direct creator and an indirect creator? One would like to say no. And it turns out the passages that many think teach that Jesus created the world or that God created the world through him, it turns out that some of these aren't really that hard to uh, get around. The famous passage in Colossians, I think, clearly has to do with new creation, not with the Genesis creation. I think you can make a strong case uh, also for Hebrews 1, not having to do with the Genesis creation, but having to do with the new creation accomplished through Jesus. But here we're still going to focus on 1 Corinthians 8. This occurs within a passage, an exhortation dealing with idolatry. I pointed this out to Dr. Tuggy, and he said a number of things in response. First, he argued that the title Lord doesn't refer to God, but is here someone in addition to God. Well, that's simply to assume your conclusion from the outset. No, that's as before noted, just to notice that different things are assumed to be true about the one God and the one Lord here. And so because of that, it seems Paul is not assuming that they're one and the same. Also, this is just competently reading Paul. He constantly distinguishes between God and the Son of God. For instance, at the start of his letters, he sends greetings from each of them. That would be redundant if he thought that they were the same one, but he doesn't think they're the same one. He thinks the one is the unique God and the other is the unique Lord, as he says here. What is under disputation is the question of who has true deity. Does the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have true deity, or does merely God the Father have true deity? Well, yeah, that's a disagreement between Unitarian and Trinitarian Christians, but that's not what Paul's concerned with here. But keep going. And Tuggy is going to say God the Father has, you know, in his reading of John seventeen three, is that there is only one God, namely the Father. Right, because that's what the New Testament says very clearly in several places. I won't bore everybody with the references. Now, about having true deity, look, uh, you could mean different things by, quote, being divine or having deity, but... The most obvious thing that you would mean by having true deity would be being a god. So the father having true deity, yeah, that means that he's a god. If the son has true deity, then it looks like he would be a god. But it looks like they wouldn't be the same god because they're not numerically identical. They differ from one another. They're not the same thing. Being the same god requires being the same thing, just like being the same man requires being the same thing, or being the same planet requires being the same thing. To be the same something or other is for this thing to be that way, and for that thing to be that same way, and also the first thing just is the second thing. That's why being the same god entails being numerically one, or equally, being the same man entails being numerically one. But we know that Paul doesn't think that God and the Son of God are numerically one. He thinks there are differences between them, such as that the Son died and God has never died, or God sent his Son, but the Son did not send his Son. The difficulty here is that the terms God and Lord are used on a plane, both in verse uh, 5 and in verse 6, 
clearly, uh, given that the um, Paul is writing to Corinthians who come from a Gentile pagan culture, and that those two terms are the typical terms used of deities in the time, and he's using those terms God and Lord to refute the gods and lords, the divine lords of the pagan religions, and that he's alluding to Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, sort of undoes that objection. Used on a plane. Uh, wow, is this supposed to be some kind of observation that supports his interpretation here, that the one being called Lord must be divine just as much as the one who's being called God? I don't even really know what that means to say they're used on a plane. Yes, we're agreeing that pagans call some of their deities gods and others of their deities lords. My assumption is that these are two different tiers of deities. And so they're on a plane, but they're not. Um, They're both being used of divine beings, beings which in some sense are divine, and yet uh, there's kind of a higher and lower distinction that's probably being presupposed there. What's being contrasted is that the pagans would say that there are many gods and many lords, whereas we Christians would say that there's one God and one Lord. That's what's happening here. There isn't a point being made about the divinity or the full deity of the one being called Lord here. Is he alluding to the Shema? Uh, Yeah, I, I suppose. I mean, just by saying that for us there's one God, I mean, I guess you would count that as an allusion to the Shema. But, uh, you know, that falls far short of this new interpretation that's now the rage in conservative academic circles, that here Paul is reformulating the Shema or somehow reworking it or reconfiguring it, like he's updating it and making it Christian. Just alluding, that doesn't count in favor of his interpretation or of mine. He goes on to note that literally no one in the history of Christian thought drew this conclusion regarding Paul's recasting of the Shema in 1 Corinthians 8.6. No one drew this conclusion until, I believe it was around the early 1980s. There is nothing at all obvious about such a reading. Mm -hmm. Why would Paul be reformulating the Shema when discussing food sacrifice to idols? Right. Well, this is interesting. First, does it matter whether or not somebody recognized this in the 80s or not? I don't know that that's true. I'd have to research that. Uh, but I don't see how that is, that is at all relevant. It's, it's sort of an appeal to authority, but the authority is silence. Is there a fallacy here, an appeal to authority, something like an appeal to authority? No. Dr. Burgos should be charitable with what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. What I was saying is that this reformulating the Shema interpretation of this passage is not obvious. And you can tell it's not obvious because, as far as I know, the earliest suggestion of this idea is in James Dunn's book, Christology in the Making. Then my understanding is this was taken up and repeated by N.T. Wright in the 1990s, and ever since then, certain scholars have been repeating this as if this was some kind of discovery about this passage. I would say it's not a discovery about this passage. So no, I'm not saying that it's false because you don't find early support for it. I'm not saying it's false just because it's new. I'm just saying this is not an obvious reading. We have come up with it only in recent times, whereas if it were obvious, you would find certain people going all the way back who said this. Does Tuggy have, you know, perfect knowledge of every patristic comment made about 1 Corinthians 8.6 or every illusion? Somehow I doubt that, uh, but even if 
even if he was right, I don't see how that would be a defeater. A defeater? No, I don't think that it would show that this interpretation is false. But again, I think it shows that it's not obvious and maybe needs to be argued for. Does Tuggy have comprehensive deity-like knowledge of early sources? No, of course not. However, Tuggy has spent countless hours slogging through translations of the early material, and Tuggy has looked in indexes for discussions or mentions of this passage, and I cannot find any reformulating the Shema spin on this passage in any early writer. So I'm pretty confident based on years of looking that this interpretation simply didn't exist in ancient times. In fact, it makes sense that it wouldn't exist, because in pre-Nicene times, most agree that the one true God is the Father, which is what Paul says here. There's no push for a multi-personal God in the early years, in the first roughly three Christian centuries. Later on, yeah, you might expect someone in the time, say, of Augustine to want to find that here, that somehow Paul is gesturing at divine plurality or the idea of multiple persons in God, but I have not found this there. If there were going to be some kind of ancient reader who were going to run together God and the Son of God as if they were one and the same, I would expect that to be the monarchians, the ones that are called modalistic monarchians, not the dynamic monarchians, but, you know, we really don't have any sources from their hands. So, Again, I'm just not aware of this N.T. Wright slash James Dunn take on this passage, anything like that in antiquity. So I stand by the point. I welcome Dr. Burgos and anyone else to prove me wrong. I'd be happy to be wrong. Even if I were wrong, one would still need to argue for this, what looks like way overreaching interpretation of this passage. Given that Paul is talking about idolatry in the gods and lords of the, uh, the, the pagan deities, and that he's noting here that his argument is that these deities have no real existence, but for us there is one God and one Lord, uh, it is certainly relevant. Uh, the nature of God and the fact that there is one God is certainly relevant, and the fact that he quotes from Deuteronomy 4.35 previously in that pericope is certainly relevant. So um, I think we need to do a little better as far as Dr. Tuggy's comment go. Look, it's not in dispute, Dr. Burgos, that monotheism is something Paul is mentioning here. He is. He's contrasting Christian monotheism in which there's one God and one Lord with pagan religions on which there are many gods and many lords. Of course he is. Now, how does this relate to reformulating the core of Jewish theology? Just because he's using the term Lord for the risen Lord Jesus Christ here, it doesn't follow that he's equating Jesus Christ with the one God, that he's somehow running the two together, nor does it follow that he thinks Jesus is one of the three persons in the divine essence or in the triune God. Those ideas just aren't here, but the idea is here that the one God is the Father himself, and that's a Unitarian view. It's just hand-waving to point out that monotheism is under discussion and then think that this somehow supports this idea that Paul is either urging a change or assuming a change to core Jewish theology. And it's not just here that Paul assumes the numerical sameness of the one God with the Father. It's all over the writings of Paul in the New Testament. If you want to hear more about that, check out Podcast 253, entitled The Apostle Paul, a Unitarian 
which is just me presenting a very informative 19th century American Unitarian tract, which gives an overview of Paul's theology. And so if we look at the, uh, the Shema and the Septuagint and, and we compare 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and I do this in one of my books, which is um, Against Oneness Pentecostalism, second edition on page 25. I provide a chart where I uh, do an, a linguistic analysis here and sort of show that Paul is uh, utilizing all the key terms of the Septuagint in uh, 1 right. Corinthians 8, God, 6. Lord, one. Right, that Paul uses the same words that are in the Greek version of the Shema is uncontroversial, but it's not clear that it's relevant. And it's something like a conspiracy theory to think that Paul is encoding here a revision of the Shema just because he's using several of the same words and phrases that are in the Shema. How could he not be when talking about this subject matter in the Greek language? And so the notion that Paul was introducing a second god or an inferior divine being uh, no, that's not what Unitarian Christians think. We don't think he's introducing a second God. And again, any biblical scholar should know that just by using the term Lord for Jesus, that doesn't mean one is presupposing that Jesus is a God. There's only one God in this very passage, and it's somebody else. It's not Jesus. It's the Father. Is there an inferior divine being here? I don't think that's Paul's point. He's saying they talk about many gods and many lords, but for us, we just say there's one God and we say there's one Lord. He's not saying that this Lord is a second-tier deity. I take it he's just exploiting the distinction between those terms in pagan religion to make the point that he's making. We know what Paul thinks Jesus is. He thinks he's a man somewhat recently born who is God's true Messiah, who is killed and now has been raised and exalted to God's right hand. And as Peter says in Acts, God has made him both Lord and Christ. So yeah, he was always destined to be that, but now he's come into the, in a sense, uh, a new stage of the fulfillment of his office. When you go around presupposing that the one God is the Father, anybody else you mention is not going to be a God, not properly speaking. Is Jesus divine in some sense? Well, Paul's not interested in that, really, ascribing some kind of lesser divinity to Jesus. He arguably doesn't have a theory about two natures in Jesus. He doesn't seem to need a theory like that. So it seems to me that the divinization of Jesus is not a New Testament theme, nor is it a theme in Paul. If by divinization you just mean being perfected as a human and being made immortal, if that's what you mean by divinization, then we're all going to be divinized. And then sure, he got divinized. He's certainly been exalted to a godlike position. If that's what you want to call divinization, you could say that he's been made divine. But anyway, this is not a New Testament teaching, I would say. So, Dr. Burgos, let's not fight against a straw man here. Why not argue against positions that Unitarian Christians actually hold? Next week on the Trinity's podcast, Dr. Burgos argues that biblical Unitarian views on the worship of Jesus quote, obliterate the first and second commandments. And I argue that we should not think that in 1 Corinthians 8.6, Paul is talking about Jesus somehow assisting in the creation of the heavens and the earth. This week's thinking music has been the track Chill Out Theme by Komiku. 
As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. Thanks to Dr. Burgos for his interactions with my work. Also on the blog post for this episode, you can find links to his books and to his podcast. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.